In 2019, 39-year-old Zeke Hernandez was recognized as one of Poets and Quants' best 40 under 40 professors in business schools around the world. The Wharton professor was asked what he thinks makes him stand out as a professor. As part of his answer, he replied, I think too often we incorrectly separate business from other aspects of life that make us human and social beings. So I talk about issues pertaining to life, relationships, and character in class every day, end quote. This is something Zeke Hernandez not only preaches, but also something he practices on a daily basis. Ezekiel Zeke Hernandez is an associate professor at Wharton. He publishes pioneering research on immigration and economic growth, as well as corporate strategies designed through alliances, acquisitions, and divestitures. Zeke is one of the highest rated teachers at Wharton, where he teaches global strategy courses. He is an alumnus of the University of Minnesota, where he received his PhD, as well as BYU, where he received his undergrad and master's degrees. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Pearson, and I am so honored to have Zeke Hernandez on the line with me today. Zeke, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show, Morgan. I'm really honored. Well, I am so excited about this conversation, and I I am so I'm anxious to be able to learn more about your story because as I prepared for this interview, I read a lot about your business background and uh, your kind of coming to Wharton and your career there. But I get to hear more about the gospel side of your story. And so this is really, really exciting. And I'm excited to share it with other people. Zeke, your parents grew up in extreme poverty in Uruguay. I wondered if we could start by sharing a little bit of their story because it is part of your story. Um, and if we could kind of, we'll go way back and then we'll bring it forward if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my parents are amazing. So it's always good to talk about them. Let's start with my mom. My mother was raised in a remote farming community in Uruguay. Uruguay is a little country in South America. And, you know, she came from a long stock of, of, of good people, good parents, honorable people, a long line of farmers who worked the land honestly and hard, but mostly toiled to put food on the table. And there wasn't much of a, of a vision or a set of opportunities beyond that. My mom was sent to a little schoolhouse in the farming community. You had to actually go several miles on horseback. And so all the kids ages about 7 to 11 or 12 would gather and they'd learn reading and writing and arithmetic. And the idea of the school system was that kids would get a rudimentary education and perform the basic tasks that they would have to as uh, farmers when they were adults. And that was it. That was sort of the extent of education and, and opportunity. But my mom had something different in her, I guess. And when she finished that school system, she wanted to keep going to school and, and do more. And that led to some arguments and negotiation back and forth. Her parents were really strongly against it because in their mind, education was for the rich. You have to keep in mind that to get more education, you had to move to the city. So you had to, you know, the whole family had to move or they had to rent an apartment in the nearest town. And that was expensive. But uh, somehow she prevailed. And, and the arrangement that they came up with was, was that she would 
you know, get, get on a bus Monday morning and sort of live Monday through Friday on her own in a, in a little bedroom, essentially, on her own, uh, and sometimes come home for the weekend. So, you know, here's, here's a 12-year-old girl completely alone trying to get an education in what we would call about sixth or seventh grade. And, you know, this was hard. She, she felt very poor. She felt like an awkward country girl. And it was just very, very tough. But, you know, she managed to be the first one in her family to do high school and eventually got some extra certifications and became an elementary school teacher. Uh, my dad also came from real poverty. He was born in, in a town, not the, not the countryside, but it was the poorest neighborhood of a small town, a couple hours away from the farm where, where my mother grew up. And he was raised by my grandma, who was a, a single mother. My grandma herself was raised by a single mother and couldn't go to school because she had to take care of the kids while my great-grandma worked. And so my grandma was completely illiterate, didn't know how to read or write, married very young, had eight children, and then lost her husband to cancer before middle age. My dad was the fourth child in that family. And so you can imagine that's really tough, right? Tough circumstances, not a lot of adult guidance or role models to know what to do in life. But, you know, there were two things I think that made a big difference. One of them was, I, I believe my grandmother was aware of the disadvantages she had being illiterate. So she really tried to encourage her kids in her own way to go to school, which meant finish high school. That was sort of the extent of the vision, do high school. And my father did that. He was a you know smart kid and finished high school. The second thing that made a big difference, and I'll talk more about that probably later, is that my dad eventually joined the church when he was 14. His, his two older siblings, my aunt and uncle, met the missionaries. My dad was baptized at age 14. And then, you know, where, where the stories converge is that my parents met in high school. They started dating, you know, their high school sweethearts. They uh, both eventually did high school. They both actually worked as school teachers. But at the early years of their marriage and courtship, they were very, very poor, very tough years. Uh, they weren't making much money. My dad actually had uh, drifted a little bit from the church in his teenage years. But when they had their first child, my, my mom really became interested in, in the gospel. She joined the church. My dad's testimony was reignited, and they, they haven't looked back since, and that has uh, made a big difference. Well, I love, I love that it's clear, especially in, in the case of your mom, that this love for education and love for learning has been instilled in you your entire life and valuing that and recognizing the difference when you have opportunities for education versus when you don't. So looking back, Zeke, as your parents kind of, your mom joined the church and your dad became more committed, how would you say that the gospel changed your family's trajectory? I mean, I don't know how to overstate the effect it had, right? As I was thinking about this this morning, knowing that we would talk, this, the scripture that came to mind is John eight thirty two, which says, and ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, right? And that's the best way I can put it. When my parents understood the plan of salvation and really believed it, it just completely changed their vision of everything, of, of their potential, of our potential, meaning their children, of, of, the, of the purpose of families, of life. You know, their, their ancestors and parents, they were good people. They did the best they could. But when you grow up poor, when you don't have much education, you probably inherit, you know, false traditions, bad habits, incorrect assumptions about life. And 
the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, changed everything, right? Their views on parenting, on on why you get an education, on you know why you should have certain good habits, what you want to teach your kids, and so it just it just put them on a more elevated track, on a track going in a totally different direction in life. You know, what one? I mean, this this shows up in many ways that we probably don't have time to talk about, but. You know, one of the things that it did is that my dad, understanding his role as as husband, as father, uh, you know, as a person, he started pursuing more education with a totally different vision. He took night classes to get a college degree while we were little. It was you know kind of tough, a lot a lot of work. He was exhausted, but he had a vision for that, and that allowed him to get better employment, and that created some some pretty unprecedented opportunities for our family. I think another way to put it. You know, if we were talking about probabilities, right? Just think about the probability that you and I would be talking today. It, it's essentially zero, right? What, what should I be doing? I should be a farmer somewhere in Uruguay with very little education. And and given my family background, the the fact that I'm here and not there is because of my parents embracing the gospel and all the opportunities that came because of that. So interesting that you say that, Zeke, because I was just thinking the other day um, about a situation in my life where right now there's like a certain probability of something. And I had the thought, well, it doesn't really matter what the odds are when you're talking about God and when the a belief in God is is part of the equation, it kind of has this ability to change everything, to change the odds for people. You know, what you just said reminds me of, of this idea that we're here to, to act and not be acted upon, right? And I think, I think what the gospel does is that not that our circumstances immediately change, but our circumstances act upon us, but they're not deterministic, right? We can act, and I think the gospel gives us additional tools to, uh, to, to move beyond what the circumstances would dictate. So that, that just came to mind as, as you said that. Thanks for that. Thanks for that insight. <laughs> Zeke, you grew up after after being born in Uruguay, you grew up in several different countries. I know that you have a passion for people in all parts of the world. How did growing up and seeing what life was like for people in different parts of the world shape your worldview? Yeah, I mean, what you're referring to is, is one of the remarkable opportunities that came from uh, my, my parents' you know, not just embracing the gospel, but, you know, embracing new educational and employment opportunities. And, you know, that was that was better work. When I was four, one of the opportunities that came our family's way is that my father got an uh, assigned, got an expatriate assignment to, to work abroad. Uh, he was promoted and, and sent to work in Costa Rica. And then we spent several years living abroad, living overseas. We lived uh, in, in Guatemala. We lived in Argentina. Throughout those years, we were able to to travel a reasonable amount and, and you know see see parts of the world that that I think we would have never imagined uh, seeing. Part of the experience actually was attending international schools where the teaching was 100% in English, which is why why I speak the language we're speaking. And you know those schools attracted kids and families from all over the world who you know their parents might have been on expat assign assignments like like my father. And so that was just amazing. I mean, you can imagine it just completely expands your worldview. I realize that there's lots of different ways of thinking and even interpreting the same experience based on your background. And so that made me comfortable with a lot of different and unique cultures. 
the traveling and seeing people from walks of life exposed me to really different socioeconomic circumstances. So I saw indigenous people in Guatemala living in, in real poverty, right? Even like worse poverty than like what my parents came from. Sometimes we were around people that were extremely wealthy, right? Who had done very well in business or, or in politics. I witnessed social and political conflict. Uh, you know, Guatemala was experiencing a civil war when I lived there. You know, I fell in love with traveling. And I think, I think what it ended up doing for me is helped me realize that, you know, when people of different backgrounds come together, they can do really amazing things together if they find harmony. Right, because that variety of experiences and perspectives really enriches whatever you're trying to do, whether it's a, a, a community thing, a job, a, a professional thing. But it's also that harmony is hard to find, right? Because people from different backgrounds clash. So, you know, I saw I saw both sides of the yeah, just an amazing blessing to grow up that way. That's awesome. Zeke, you said that you feel like your own personal conversion to the gospel came after a period of doubt in your teenage years. Can you share a little bit about that experience? Yeah, sure. You know, my own conversion to the gospel was a result of, I think, a few things that clashed together around the time I was about 14 or 15 years old. By that age, our time living abroad had ended. We were back in Uruguay. And the move back home was a bit traumatic for me. But, you know, it was an age where I, I missed my friends. I missed the lifestyle we had. And at the same time, my brother, who's about four years older than I am, left home to serve a mission. And him and I are very, very close, even to this day. So for some reason, his leaving, it just hit me. It became very real that one day I might go on a mission, right? Or that that choice was, some, was one that I needed to think about. And it led to a realization that, you know, if I, if I had been asked to go serve a mission right then and there and talk to a stranger about the gospel, I realized that I couldn't honestly tell that stranger that I knew that Jesus Christ was my savior or that the church had been restored through Joseph Smith. In other words, I didn't have a standalone testimony. I mean, I love my parents, but I just wasn't sure if the things they taught me, the things that they had embraced and that had changed their life so much were really true. And uh, doubt crept in, right? For example, I thought, well, maybe the church was a, a good human institution that really helped them, but was it a divine thing, <laughs> right? And that was scary. It was scary to let doubt creep in and to open the door to the possibility that the restored gospel maybe wasn't true. But, you know, as, as any one of us who is, is raised in the, in the church, so to speak, you also have things that stay with you. And so, you know, I was keenly aware that Joseph Smith had had similar questions and doubts when he was about exactly that age. Uh, I remembered Alma's invitation to experiment upon the word and plant the seed and see if it grows or that analogy had stayed with me. And and so I decided to run the experiment, so to speak. And and what, what I'm about to describe next for anyone who has grown up or been in the church a long time, there's nothing novel or unique about it. I, I just, I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try this out. So uh, what I did was I first set the goal that I would read the Book of Mormon every day until I finished it. I hadn't done that before. And I also decided that I would pray on my knees as honestly as I could every day before reading the Book of Mormon. And then I also told myself that I'd just keep doing that until I knew one way or another if the gospel was true. 
And, uh, you know, it took several months. It would be a lie to say that, you know, within a few days, boom, the confirmation came. And I knew, I think the first thing I noticed was just that I kind of overall felt better about myself as I went about the day. There was just a little bit more of a bounce in my step. And then I noticed that my desires started to change. I was I was kind of more drawn to good things. I wanted to treat people more kindly. I was also drawn away from toxic people, from toxic activities. And then, you know, many months in, I was reading the Book of Mormon one day, and I just had a really powerful experience, a really powerful confirmation that it was all true. Um, and I knew that it was a feeling of the spirit, that, that the, the channel between heaven and me was open. It wasn't a human emotion. It wasn't some human thought. It, it, was, it wasn't anything like that. It was divine. And it was beyond me. And, it, and it's, it's one of the surest things I've ever felt. And of course, since then, I've had other confirmatory experiences. But, but that, that was the beginning. And you know, like I said, I know many people who are listening to this podcast understand what I'm describing. Some people might not. But the, 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 the point is not that the process was unique, but it was... I knew for myself, right? And and that was a real valuable thing. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing to me is not so much that the process the process may not have been unique, but I think there is power in intentional effort and setting that intention like this is what I desire to gain from this and this is what I'm going to do and I think that that that's awesome that you did that. How would you say now in the position that you're in and with your career, how does the gospel shape your hunger for education and knowledge? You know, that's a great question because it, it gets at something that was to me really unexpected about becoming converted to the restored gospel. I mean, I expected, I certainly was open to the possibility that it wasn't, but if it was, my expectation was that I would sort of live life by the spirit and that that would bless me in the, you know, the, the, the spiritual part, the quote church or the, or the family part of, of my life. And it's done that for sure. But something really unexpected happened, even, even at that young age, um, which was that the, the moment the spirit came into my life, the moment I, I, I knew what it felt like and I lived by it, the light of the spirit just supercharged my desire to seek for truth everywhere I could find it. I mean, certainly in the in the scriptures and the words of the prophets, but also in all the other ways that God gives us truth, whether it's through science or literature or art or or, or nature, just, just all the beautiful channels that, that he has given us to, to learn things that are good for us and true. And so... I didn't just learn the gospel through the spirit. I, I became a, a better student. I became super motivated to find truth anywhere I could find it. And it just reminds me a bit of, you know, if it's okay to quote a few scriptures here, but, you know, in section 88, we, we received the commandment to seek learning even by study and also by faith, right? But it's not, notice that it's not one or the other, it's both and they're intimately related. And you know, earlier in that section, the Lord talks about all the things he wants us to learn. And I'm paraphrasing a bit, but, you know, we, we might be familiar with the words of like learning things both in heaven and in earth and under the earth, things which are and which have been and which must come to pass, uh, things that are abroad, the wars and perplexities of nations, knowledge of, knowledge of countries and kingdoms. 
And all of that is, uh, is so that we will be better prepared to serve him and to serve others. And so that was, that was a big part of my experience of the gospel it, it is the knowledge and light and truth that comes into our lives in, in all aspects. And I think that hunger for education and knowledge is, is a big part of, uh, I guess, how I experienced conversion. But it's led to a real lifelong love of learning as a way of progressing. One of my favorite scriptures is in section 50, verse 24 of Doctrine and Covenants. And it says, that which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And that's a great expression, I think, of, of what I'm talking about. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with eventually choosing an academic career for me. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that, Zeke. You were initially working as an accountant, and you recognized that that was not that was not giving you life. And so I wondered kind of if you could share a little bit about how you ended up transitioning from being an accountant and being in the business world to then entering the world of academia. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is where some interesting things, you know, from, from the past and, and perhaps, you know, having been raised by parents who really experienced poverty, you know, all these things clash. Right. And so I majored in accounting and in, in, in college and you know, accounting is a, is a really great career for many people. So I was, uh, you know, in between undergraduate years and my doctorate degree, I spent about a year working at a large technology company as an accountant and doing some finance work. And I just, I just found no fulfillment in it. I really disliked it. Uh, it was repetitive for me, intellectually not very stimulating. And I want to pause. I have many friends <laughs> who are accountants and have great careers, and so I don't. I'm not making a general statement about this. Them. Is, this is just this is not an accountant bash session. Yeah, it's not that at all. It was just not for me, right? You know, I ju- it just felt like I wasn't in the right place. I remember, for example, looking many years ahead and thinking, well, what if I have my boss's 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 job, right? You know, ten promotions down the road, and I, it was just clear that I didn't want to do that. I just didn't feel like I had any any mission. It wasn't part of my mission, my purpose in life. So my, you know, my dear wife, Kendra, and I had a lot of conversations during that time. And she said, look, I don't, I don't want you to come home feeling that way every day, right? So demoralized by what you do. And so there was a lot of introspection and prayer and fasting. And, and I realized that my heart really was in academia. Um, I love teaching. I love research. I, I just, you know, learning and knowledge, as, as I just said, is just a big part of, I guess, how I experience the world, you know, an outsider might say, might say you were a nerd and they'd be right. I guess I was a nerd. So I, I quit my job and uh, I went back to school for five years to get a PhD and, and become a professor. And that was a long time with no income to, to her credit. Kendra was incredibly supportive, but it's, it's been so worth it. I, I love what I do. I feel that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And there's a big difference waking up feeling that way versus waking up feeling that you're going to a job just for the money. Because the the career path I was on was very lucrative, predictably lucrative, but it just didn't feel right to to do just that. Well, and I I think that it's such an important note that 
different things give different people fulfillment and there's not one path for every person. Zeke, how would you say that an understanding of the gospel perspective on light and knowledge, which you touched on previously from those scriptures in Doctrine and Covenants, how has our understanding of light and knowledge and the way that our knowledge goes with us into the next life shaped your approach uh, in your work, especially as you teach students? Let me back up a little bit, right, to what I was just saying about this this career change for me. I think what, one of the things I learned, having been in a profession where I was just in it for the money, right, perhaps because I, you know, I did not want to be poor, but not much more than that, is I, I just had a realization that, you know, God wants us to work not just to provide and be self-sufficient. There was a really wise man on my mission. He actually was, wasn't a member of the church, but we, we had a decent relationship. And his motto was work is service. That's, that, that was his motto. I think he was spot on. And, and our work, what we do every day is one of the arenas in which we serve other people. So anyway, that, that's perhaps one of the lessons I got out of that. So to answer the question you just asked me, the way I, the way I would address it is that, you know, the, the, the gospel, it informs our everyday professions if we approach our professions or what we do as, as one of the arenas in which we serve. And so for me, teaching future business leaders is, is really cool. It's a, it's a great opportunity to serve them by bringing to my classes, you know, the best, the most cutting edge knowledge so that they're using true principles in what they do. And it also informs my research because I feel a desire to research topics that are useful or practical for the world and to do it in a way that is true and, and that I'm, I'm trying to bring to bear the best that science can offer. And I think that the other dimension to that answer is that I, I really believe strongly that it's not just that our jobs are a big part of how we serve the world, but I think God is willing to guide us as much in our professional uh, endeavors as he is in our gospel or church or family lives, because, um, you know, because we, we serve in both of those arenas and all of those arenas. And so I think he gives us light and truth in the professional aspects of our lives, as well as in our quote gospel lives. You know, I think one great example of that is, is our prophet, president Nelson, right? I mean, he, he was a, a an incredibly competent, world famous heart doctor, uh, not just as a, as a practitioner, as a surgeon, but also as a researcher. And one of the stories he's shared often is, is uh, about how he received divine inspiration when he was developing an artificial heart, right? And he talks about how the scripture that all kingdoms have a law given unto them really inspired him to learn the laws that govern the human heart, right? He felt that there was divine help that he could draw on in that really important part of, of his life, his profession. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about. And that's the model that I try to follow in, in everything I do. Now, I'll finish with a disclaimer. I'm not trying to claim that like everything I do, everything I teach is flawless or divinely inspired, right? I think, I think human knowledge progresses and fits and starts. Sometimes we get things right. Sometimes we get them wrong. Then we discover, uh, you know, a theory or evidence that supersedes outdated knowledge. And so it's not that we get it perfectly, but I think the direction matters, right? That growth in, in, in truth and knowledge matters. And why not? Why not try to seek divine help 
in our in our endeavors. Certainly in mine, I, I tried to. I love that idea of kind of where you're trending. Are you trending in in which direction? And I want to note, Zeke, that this is not just something that you're saying because you're being interviewed on a church-related podcast. In another interview that I read with you, you said, uh, referring to your students, I really care deeply about them becoming good moral leaders. I also want them to be happy with their personal and professional choices. I think too often we incorrectly separate business from other aspects of life that make us human and social beings. I love that point. I love the idea that we kind of create these artificial separations or dividers in our own lives and think, okay, well, this is my professional life. This is my spiritual life. But really all of those things blend together. The, the way I would talk about that is, you know, let me ch- sort of address it in two parts. And I'll, I'll give you one that's like very specific to, to my field of business, but then okay. one I think that is more general. So, you know, obviously I, I study and teach business and, you know, that's uh, business, I think, is often seen as something like dirty or, or kind of a heartless profession. Right. Uh, one of my most hated phrases is it's not personal. It's just business. Right? I'm sure you've heard this before. And, you know, it's as if the fact that we're doing business justifies like cheating or taking advantage of someone else because, hey, this is impersonal. It's just about money or something like that. And and I do know people who truly see business that way as a dog eat dog, zero sum. I'm going to just I'm out there to destroy you. But I, I don't. And I actually believe that the best business leaders don't either because it's just one of many human endeavors. And so it's not only like unethical to have a separate code of behavior for business than for what we do in like our families or our communities. I just think it's like fundamentally illogical because they're all they're all part of the same social world that we live in. So that, that's kind of the business specific take on that. The, the more general point, and I thought a lot about this because I, I remember for some years, uh, you know, trying to be sort of a good committed member of the church and disciple of Christ, thinking why why is it that I can't just spend like all my time trying to like serve God, you know, or or, or you know put myself apart and read the scriptures. And why do I have to do these other things like have a job or, you know, or, you know, all these other distractions or, you know, volunteer in the community, go buy groceries, you know, the, the busy aspects of life, you know, why can't I just lock myself in the temple and worship God all day long? And, uh, and the answer one, one day just hit me in a very clear way, which is like all these things, all these other things aren't distractions. They're like exactly the point, right? Those are like the, the sandboxes, where we serve him, where we serve God. And so it's artificial to separate like gospel and church from job or community or, you know, whatever we do every day, my commute every day, you know, that that's exactly where I show God that I want to serve him and the way I treat others as I go about those things. And so, so if that's the case, not only are these things connected, but we should also expect God to inspire and guide us in all of those things. So that's kind of the full circle part of it for me. I love that. And I love that idea that we, I love the way that you put it as sandboxes. Like those are the sandboxes in which we are expected to, to show our love for God and to, to become like God ultimately. So I think that that is, that's profound. See, you said that when you entered your doctoral program, you realized that you had to make a change. And that change was from being a learner of truth to then becoming a producer of truth. And I wondered what you mean by that, if you could elaborate. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe some some uh, you know strange wording there, but what what I was referring to is that you know if you think about all the years that a lot of us put into our education, at least those of us who are fortunate to to get one, they're all about consuming the knowledge that other people discovered or produced over many years, right? So so whether you're studying, I don't know, a theory, a mathematical principle, an algorithm, a formula a history, uh, you know, textbook, uh, a, a poem, right? You're, you're really trying to learn and absorb knowledge that somebody else created or discovered and, and they've, you know, digested it for you. You take tests that are all about how well do you absorb knowledge. And by the time most people are done with something like college, we're actually really good at consuming knowledge, right? That's, you know, when I started a doctoral program, I was kind of like a super student. I'd proven that I could, you know, learn really well. But then I, I realized that my training was all about how to produce original research. And the name of the game wasn't about learning other people's ideas, but coming up with original ideas of my own, okay, pushing the boundaries of knowledge. And so I wasn't evaluated anymore by how well could I digest someone else's thoughts or ideas, but how, how novel are the ideas I'm coming up with? How rigorously can I prove them? with evidence. And that was really eye-opening because one, it made me realize actually like how much effort there is to like produce a reliable little bit of knowledge. Like think about a, a textbook in college, you read one paragraph and behind that paragraph, there might be decades of research, right? Just to verify that what that paragraph says is correct. And so it, it gave me an appreciation for the other side, right? Of, of knowledge, the production of it. But also it made me realize that being the producer is very different than being the consumer. You know, for example, you have to develop a healthy skepticism about what other scientists did before you. You have to challenge it, come up with a better answer, with a better explanation. You have to go really deep into the, the scientific method, right? That is, how do we know that this evidence is better than that other evidence? And then you have to learn to persuade others that like your new ideas are worth it, right? That they have to like unlearn what they knew before and believe this new thing. So all of that was new. It was, it was, it was exciting, but it was also really intimidating because I, I was around like extremely smart people, right? Many of them, most of them way smarter than I am. And I thought, well, how can puny little me add anything useful to this world, right? A little bit of knowledge, a new paragraph to a textbook or, or something like that. And, you know, that, that can be daunting. And I remember in that process, I came across a scripture that gave me both comfort and confidence. And that scripture is Abraham 3.19. And it says the following. It says, these two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. And I was like, wow. Okay, so it actually doesn't matter how low I am in the hierarchy of intelligence, right? There might be a lot of people above me, but through the Holy Ghost, I can directly plug into the most intelligent of them all and maybe draw some inspiration that goes beyond my, my own wisdom to maybe, you know, produce some of that knowledge that's useful and, and true, so to speak. And, you know, that was just really, really helpful and a way to connect my, you know, <laughs> my job with um, with what the gospel offers. That's amazing. I love that thought so much. Zeke, you're considered by many to be an expert on immigration. 
I wondered, what do you wish that people within the church understood about this topic? Because I understand it's very complex and can be at times polarizing. And why do you feel that it's something that the Lord wants you to devote time to and to shed light on? Yeah, well, I would start with this. You know, in the New Testament, there's one of the most quoted scriptures, and, and by all Christians, not just members of, of our particular church, or I was a stranger and you took me in, right, is one of the scriptures that we quote a lot. And I think that's the simplest way I could articulate uh, from the perspective of a disciple of Jesus Christ, how we should treat the foreigner, right? I mean, I think Jesus taught us pretty clearly that where the rubber meets the road is how we treat the stranger or the outsider, the outcast, the disadvantaged. And there's lots of people who fall under that label. Immigrants and refugees are, are just some of the most obvious, perhaps, uh, also some of the most controversial. But I think how we treat them is one of the real tests of our, uh, of our Christianity, of our discipleship. And as you said, I'm, you know, I'm entering really controversial and complicated territory here. But, um, you know, we know that immigration uh, is really divisive in lots of countries, you know, nowhere more so than here in the United States where you and I live. And I'm, I'm sure that many people listening to me speak right now have strong opinions about this, uh, you know, due to their political background or, or life experiences. Um, but I, I think it's important to make this distinction. Insofar as there's reasonable debates to be had about how we handle immigration, I think those are at the level of policy and politics. But at the level of how we treat individual people and individual immigrants, I don't really see a lot of disagreement among Christians or any person of faith, right? I would go to basic principles, love one another, the scripture I just quoted, I was a stranger and you took me in. I think those are paramount principles at the individual level. And so I would say, you know, as a member of the church, as, a, as someone who tries to emulate Christ, um, you know, that's, that's perhaps the most important thing in terms of how we treat each other individually. And so I realize that the answer I gave is not what I write about professionally. Right? It's not my research, but that's my sort of gospel perspective on it. If it's okay with you, though, I'd like to say a little bit more, perhaps at that level of policy that we debate on, if that's all right. Yeah. So, yeah. So my specific expertise focuses on how immigrants affect our economic well-being. That is, you know, is it good? Are we more prosperous if we let immigrants in or not into our countries? And what I'm about to say, I should preface by this. I didn't really set out to study immigration. It's not like I had some preconceived opinion about immigrants, you know, uh, because I am one, right? And I thought, oh, I'm going to go, you know, justify, you know, something that I already thought about. I, in fact, I had no interest in studying immigration. What I really wanted to understand was economic prosperity, right? How does business across borders affect economic growth and prosperity? But the more I followed the evidence and the data and, uh, you know, tried to be really rigorous about understanding that topic, the more I realized that immigrants are a, a hugely positive factor for creating economic prosperity. I think most people listening to me right now would agree that we want investment in our communities because those investments create jobs. Uh, we want people to come up with new ideas and products that make our, our lives easier and, and better. 
And, you know, after 15 years of, of research, a lot of it my own, but also just the research that other colleagues of mine have done, there's really, really clear, very compelling evidence that places with more immigrants attract more investments that create jobs. Uh, I'll give you just a, a silly example, but, uh, you know, it makes a point. Like the state of Arkansas has an unexpectedly high number of Japanese residents for, for quirky reasons, okay? And so Arkansas gets a much higher than normal amount of investment from Japanese companies, right, that create jobs, right? Why? Because those immigrants play a big role in connecting Arkansas to the economy of Japan, you know? And there's other research that shows that the businesses that immigrants start create more jobs. And those businesses produce a lot of the technological and product innovations that make our lives more comfortable. For example, most of us use Zoom or Google every day, right? These are companies started by immigrants. Some people like to dance salsa, right? Salsa music. That musical genre was created by immigrants in New York, right? It wasn't created in Latin America. You know, we eat foods like tortilla wraps, uh, right? That were also like kind of amalgams of different kinds of foods as immigrants and natives came together. So a, a lot of the things that make us economically better off exist thanks to immigrants. So whether it's we want jobs, investment, innovation, it turns out you can't really separate the movement of people from the movement of ideas and goods and services that make our lives better. So what's, what's the upshot of all that, right? I'm, and by the way, I just summarized like 15 years of mind-numbingly slow research, but it's, it's really important to know that, I think. Right. Having the correct facts about that would allow you and me to be better informed citizens when we vote, when we advocate for immigration and economic policies. And so that matters as a member of the church, but I think it just matters in general. So, you know, personally, I've just felt that that's part of what I'm here for, right? To shed light on this topic. It's part of my professional mission. I feel drawn and inspired to do the work. And it's not to score political points, it's not to defend some agenda. It's just to, bring a little bit more clarity and truth to bear on the matter. Is everything I've researched on the topic perfect? Probably not. But I think the general direction, again, of, of, of where the science is taking us is, is pretty clear. And so that's, um, you know, it's kind of where I come at, where I come at, or where I come from on that topic. Well, I, I think that's super helpful. And I think the thing that's nice, and I sometimes just feel so lucky to have the chance to talk to people like you, Zeke, that are experts on a certain topic, because I think we see so much in the news and we hear so much in the news, but it feels like it's coming at us with an angle or a slant. And to be able to cut right to the heart of the topic and to talk to somebody that has spent a lot of time digging into that research, I think is is a blessing. And I'm grateful to you for being willing to share. Like you said, it didn't, it felt like we were just like flying through 15 years of research. So that was fun. Zeke, one of the things that you are known for and loved for by the students in your classes at Wharton is what you call secrets. And so in each class, you share things that you've learned in various aspects of life. It doesn't necessarily have to tie into the topic of that day's class. But I'm curious about whether the gospel ever influences these secrets and whether you might be able to give us, and I imagine that we've probably touched on some as we've gone through our conversation today, but if you might be willing to give us an example of one secret. Yes, sure. I, I'd be glad to do this. 
I have to be a little careful with this answer for this reason. So I think, you know, general, yes, it's, uh, you know, given everything I just said, I think it's impossible that, you know, the, the, the values and principles that I get from the gospel don't influence everything I do at work. So, so yes, uh, that that's includes things I probably share with my students. Where where I draw have to draw a line though and be a little careful is that also part of the professionalism I have to exhibit and and the duty I have is to leave out preaching my personal religious beliefs in the classroom. Right, that's not uh, not the arena to do that. I, res- I, I owe that as sort of respect for my students who, who, you know, they themselves might bring beliefs or unbeliefs and, and it would be unfair for them to, to, you know, impose that on the classroom. So right in these so-called secrets, I don't bring anything in that, that I don't believe would apply, wouldn't apply to like a pluralistic audience with many beliefs. Right. So it's, it's more general stuff that I bring in. So yeah, the, the point of these, moments of sharing is is just to try to um, get at this point of the inseparability between like business and life, right? And and bring in things about values, things that that I think can help my students perhaps have a have a better life or be more ethical in the decisions they make and those kinds of things. And so I, you know, we covered topics uh, like how to choose a career or you know, how to use your career for service, uh, the importance of being thankful, how to use money wisely, you know, things like that. But you asked for an example. So uh, I'll give you one, one of the first ones I share with students in my class. So I, um, I show them a video demonstrating that actually most of us are tying our shoes incorrectly. So it turns out that the way that most of us were taught our shoes involves a knot that comes untied pretty frequently. That's why we have to retie our shoes frequently throughout the day. Uh, but there's actually a really simple solution to this. And, it, and it's just, you know, a lot of us were taught like the bunny ears technique. And so you, you go over the knot in one direction. But it turns out that if you just go around the knot the other way, instead of from, for, from back to forward, you go from forward to back, uh, then you end up with a strong knot that doesn't come untied. And so that becomes sort of a way into talking about how there's a lot of areas in our lives where we actually think we know it all, but we actually don't, uh, and areas that are way more important than tying our shoes. And so that uh, then ends up in a conversation about why we often fail to see better ways of doing things. And what I suggest is that it comes down to pride, right? Pride blinds us to the ability to keep learning because we kind of think, hey, I got this, right? I, I, you know, there's nothing more to learn. And so the cure for pride is its opposite, it's humility. And so we talk about the importance of humility in business because, you know, business people often like to act overconfident. And I say, no, no, it's the opposite. You should be really humble, be willing to say, I don't know, because that humility will lead you to never stop learning or improving. And so, you know, that's that's an example of flavor of, of what a secret is is about. I should add one more thing, which is that I actually didn't come up with the label secrets. It's, it's not like I was trying to come up with some personal branding. It's just one day before class, one of my students said, hey, are you going to share with us some life advice? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I will. And he said, oh, well, why don't you start calling them secrets? And the other students kind of loved the label and the play on words. And it's kind of become a it's kind of taken on a life of its own at Wharton, I guess. That's awesome. It's stuck. Well, I think that's such a fun idea and a, a great way to start your classes. And I'm jealous of the students that get, that get to sit in your classes, Zeke. 
My last question for you is what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Another great question. And I knew it was coming, of course, because it's your podcast. So, so I've, I have been thinking about this one. So I want to address it in, in two aspects or two dimensions of what it means to be all in. And I would say to me, there's like a broad dimension and a deep dimension to it. So the, the broad part of it is perhaps going back to something we discussed earlier, which is all in means that the gospel is the most important aspect of our lives in all the various different roles, all the various different things that we do, right? Without any artificial separation between them, right? So we broadly apply the gospel to everything, not just to our role as, you know, mother, father, church member, but, but everything we do. So it's the core of how we approach every different role we have instead of being Christians just in some parts of our life. So it's kind of the all encompassing part of all in. But I think then there's a deep part right? Which is with, within each one of those roles or different aspects of our lives, how deeply do we apply the gospel of Jesus Christ in each one? Meaning, are we just superficial disciples, say, at home or at work and in our callings? Or do we put all our heart, mind, uh, and strength in each one of those aspects to try to really apply the gospel as best we can? So that's, you know, both a broad and a deep answer. And it's, of course, the work of a lifetime, but it's, you know, it's beautiful, joyful work. Well, Zeke, I, I want to applaud you because I think that you are somebody that practices what you preach. I noticed I was reading an interview on Poets and Quants, which is, uh, for those that don't know, a big NBA school website. And they were interviewing Zeke because he was being honored as one of the top 40 professors. And they asked you what your favorite book was. <laughs> and you said the Book of Mormon, the actual book, not the musical. And I just thought that was so cool that in a very secular interview, you were willing to say that the Book of Mormon was your favorite book. And and so I appreciate you being someone who uh, not only says that we shouldn't separate those different aspects of our lives, but lives that. I, I love you for that. And, and I'm grateful, so grateful for your time. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. And I hope uh, for whoever's listening, thank you for listening. I hope it's valuable to you. We are so grateful to Zeke Hernandez for joining us on today's episode. A big thanks to Derek Campbell of Mix at Six Studios for his help with making each and every episode of this podcast sound so great. And thank you so much for listening. We'll look forward to being with you again next week. <laughs>